0: If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn in them with me to Hebrews chapter 6 as we continue our study there. I'll begin reading in verse 3. And I'll read through verse 12. And this we will do if God permits. The rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. I read the whole passage there just to bring back into our minds what it is we're talking about. And last week we spent the majority of our time on verses 3 through 8. We did look at verses 9 through 12, um, but that's what we'll be looking at closely today. I began with the encouragement of verse 3, gave the severe warning of verses 4 through 8, and then tried to end on the encouragement of 9 through 12. And so the context is that he's giving a very, what some may call a harsh or strong or stern warning to this people. He sees in them, as it were, a slight teetering on the edge. He's not sure if they have a desire, a zeal or the same earnestness they had in the beginning to continue with Christ. The reproach of the name of Christ has become too much for some of them, perhaps. And so he warns them very severely what will happen if they away. This is what we might call tough love. It is also a life giving love. It is a godly love. You can't help but see that God operates the same way in telling you the truth you need to hear, even if it is rigid and difficult to take in. If you just read the Old Testament, especially a Testament, especially the prophets, God speaks this way to his people. And so that's what we spent the majority of last week doing, looking at this severe warning and trying to understand exactly what the author of Hebrews is warning us against what he is saying will happen. And so we have a need for encouragement. Because we began with encouragement, and we ended with encouragement, but even just spending the significant time we did last week on the severe warning, there's a need for encouragement. And so we'll look again at verses 9 through 12. So what I'll be doing is looking at verses 9 through 12 and highlighting what I think there are probably more, but I see at least 12 encouragements that he gives to his audience to this congregation and they're very serious. They're very grand and they require attention and focus. They're, they're not something easy that I can just all start with the same letter of the alphabet and just give you these are very meaningful gospel centered gospel birthed encouragements. And we have a need for encouragement. This life, this Christian life, Jesus promises in this world, you will have troubles. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Right. It's it's an assurance, it's promise that this is going to be difficult, not just difficult from outside. It's not just as if difficulty comes into our lives and we just kind of float as a spiritual being through these difficulties and it doesn't affect us. We we participate with Christ's sufferings, who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As part of the journey. To experience grief as the sufferings come into her life, grief and sorrow. But how does the Christian do that? How do how do we how are we more than conquerors when those things happen? And I think these twelve encouragements, like I said, there are probably more, but at least these twelve are the way that we become more than conquerors through that. The way I will be phrasing them, and the way I think that is a very significant and helpful way to think of these encouragements. It's not like the world gives encouragement, right? When the world tries to encourage you, what do they usually say? You got this, you're strong. I've even found myself telling my daughter Zoe this. You're tough, you're tough. You know, you fall, you hit your head, you know, it could turn into a really big crying session, but you're tough, you're tough, you got this. And then it kind of diverts what's about to happen. But that's not necessarily Christian encouragement. What I want to give you is a phrase that uh, was given to me through a sermon at a a conference. This phrase, I think it's very biblical. It's the evidences of grace. You're going to write down anything today for this message. Write that down. Evidences of grace. Because if you can learn, if you can train your senses to see evidences of grace in your life and in the lives of of your brothers and sisters in Christ and even evidences of grace in the lives of unbelievers who are being drawn to the Lord, then you can begin to be encouraged because God is at work because if its grace, then that means the Holy Spirit is working these things out in your heart and in mine and in our friends. So train this is an attempt to help train ourselves to see evidences of grace in our lives and in the lives of others through these 12 encouragement encouragements. And some of us in this room are prone to being sorrowful and melancholy and some are prone to be overly light and glib. And oftentimes the truth is not what it appears on the surface. The Lord doesn't want us to be light and glib or sad all the time. Be like Jesus, who is, as I said, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, yet often he is seen bursting at the seams with joy in the Holy Spirit. A creature who follows Jesus in his example, a brother or sister in the Lord who behaves and thinks and feels like Jesus is one who holds seemingly contradictory things in your heart at the same time. And so right off the bat, I want to give you an encouragement. This is the first evidence of grace you might say for you specifically. We looked at last week some of the most severe and difficult verses in all the Bible. And so my encouragement to you or evidence of grace is if you can bear that kind of teaching and it does not turn you away or make your heart recoil, then that is a massive evidence of God's grace. You look at John chapter six and the people who had received their fill of the loaves come to him. They want to make Jesus king. That sounds good, right? They're recognizing Jesus is awesome. They want to make him their king. And he says, if unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you can have no share in me. And many of them say, this is a hard teaching. Who can bear it? And tons of his disciples stop following him. And the twelve remain and he looks to them you want to go as well. And Peter says, where are we to go? You have the words of life. So if you have been able to receive even the difficult teaching of the word of God, as shown in these past verses, as one example, that's an evidence of grace. You don't persevere through difficult teaching on your own. The spirit is at work in you, preparing the soil so that you might even receive those texts and not recoil and turn away. So he says, though we speak in this way, so this indicates he's turning his attention to something else an encouragement, though we speak in this way, appealing to all of the warnings that he gave in verses four through eight, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. You feel sure. A better thing. So he says, in your case, this indicates he has personal knowledge of their story. And he remembers God's faithfulness as shown in their faithfulness at the beginning. And I would encourage you that you have to build in yourself, you have to train yourself, you have to work and find a way that you might remember God's faithfulness in your life. Many people do this through journaling. That's really never worked for me. And so don't hear me say you've got you've got to write it down. You have to write down God's faithfulness in your life. If that works for you and you're able to do that and be able to recount to yourself God's faithfulness in times past, then do it. Find some way that for you, you are given remembrance of God's faithfulness because and this is what the author is doing. In your case, he's appealing to what he, how he remembers them being. And we'll look at how he sees this and how he saw this in the beginning in a little bit. But what about forgetting what lies behind? Are we supposed to remember everything that's happened up to this point? Or are we supposed to forget what lies behind, like Paul says in Philippians 3? Which one is it? And here's, here's how this encouragement really takes on flesh, right? How you put flesh on those bones. There's a difference between confidence in your spiritual journey and taking encouragement through your spiritual journey. One looks at yourself and your spiritual resume and the things you've experienced and seen. And one looks at God's work and the work of the Holy Spirit in you. The way it will look is I and me and look at what I did and look at what uh, God did in me and for me. And the shift is where you begin talking about what God has done through you to be sure and for you to be sure. But the main emphasis in your mind and in your heart is look at how great God is as you remember his faithfulness to you in your past. This is exactly how uh, many of the prophets exhorted Israel. Remember what God did for you in delivering you from Egypt? Remember what he did in parting the Red Sea? Remember what he did in sending you food and water? So I would say to you, this is an evidence of God's grace. I see so much evidence of God's grace in you. Is everyone here perfect? No, not even one of us is perfect. Do we have a long way to go? Yes, we do. Every one of us has a long way to go. Are there problems in our church? Sin issues for each person, including myself? Yes. Am I concerned that many of you like the Seahawks? Yes. It's a problem. (laughs) There's all kinds of problems. Okay. But all joking aside, I see endurance. I see eagerness to grow in the Lord. I see a desire to know the Lord. I see a desire to commit your lives to the Lord, a desire to reach others for Christ. And I see so much brotherly affection. I see so much care and willingness to inconvenience yourself for your brothers and sisters. I see a real desire to worship the Lord and increase the fervor of your worship. And this is why there is so much encouragement available for you if you begin to see your world with grace at the epicenter. Because if grace is what enables all of those things, then that means that God God is at work in you, producing those things. You see? How much encouragement, how much yield there is. If you see that these things, you think you think that's from you? You think it's from your own self that you have an eagerness to know the Lord, an eagerness to grow in his word and to increase the fervor of your worship? You think that's from you? Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? Every good gift, every perfect gift is from God. And so if you see it that way, then when you identify something in your heart that you can't account for by yourself, that means God is at work in you. Is how Paul says it. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace, his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So it's not from you, brothers and sisters. When you look at yourself and when you identify, oh, this is happening in my heart. And when you see it in your brothers and sisters and when you identify that, that's from God. And there is great encouragement to be taken and to be had by seeing that. He calls them dear friends. He has care for him, for them. And this this happens in the heart of ministers towards those they're ministering to. This is how Paul says it in First Thessalonians, he says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. There's a knitting together of the hearts that happens in a church by the Spirit. You look around. The people in this room, many of them are not the type of people that you would have a healthy, long-term friendship with if if it were not for Christ, and that's a beautiful thing. When you have deep affection and love for someone that naturally you wouldn't be inclined to be really good friends with, When you see that happening in your heart, that's the spirit working, knitting you together with your brothers and sisters. That's an evidence of grace. So That's the third encouragement in this text, that you look at and see your heart being knitted to your brothers and sisters in this very church and know that that is of the Lord. And he contrasts them with those who are falling away. Yet in your case, meaning not like those who are falling away or who have fallen away. So he looks at them and and identifies that they're, they're not falling away. So if you see in your life, this is immediately now even the fourth encouragement in this text. If you're not falling away, if you're not on the path of Jesus for you has not become a reproach, if in your heart... You are resolute that Jesus is my Lord. Even though there may be confusion and doubt and fears at times, if you're resolute in your heart, Jesus is my Lord and I will follow him wherever he leads. That is of grace and that is a great source of encouragement and evidence in your life that you've not fallen away because it is God who is able to keep you from stumbling. And he's working that in your heart. The risk is still there because there is the possibility and the frequency even in our world of false professions of faith and self-deception. But we will get to the prescription for assurance here in a little bit. So he says, in your case, dear friends or beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation for God is not Unjust so as to overlook your work the way to you could phrase it is we remain sure in your case. He has confidence in the work of God in their lives. And I will just say before we get to all of the biblical ways to have assurance just now being sure is possible. Being sure of this happening in your heart. Is possible and even being sure of other people in your case, we feel sure of better things. You can have that assurance and that. uh, Not just for yourself, but for your brothers and sisters, you can have that because the author has it here and he's going to point us in these verses to the way that we can have biblical assurance. He doesn't want us to place our assurance on the wrong things. There are many false foundations of assurance. But it is possible to have biblically grounded, Christ-exalting assurance of the work of God in you. And to be sure of better things for yourself and for your brothers and sisters. And he's, in, he's reminding them. And he's telling them, I am sure in your case of better things. Now, there, there is a difference here that we need to talk about. He's not just encouraging them with fluff, okay? Hopefully, if you read and you were here last week and you saw what ch- verses 4 through 8 really mean, you can see he's not encouraging them with fluff. He's not just saying to them like the world says, you got it, you're tough, you're awesome, you're knocking it out of the park. But he does look at them and give them real encouragement. He sees in them with spiritual eyes, eyes informed by the word of God and the gospel. He identifies things in them that are of grace. And this is an encouragement to you. The fifth encouragement in this text. He says that in their case, he he feels more sure and he's expressing that to them. There are people in your life that you need to encourage. And us encouraging one another and and calling out and calling attention to the evidences of grace in their life is part of how God builds assurance in your heart. So to look at someone's life and say, you know what, I see this character trait in you that maybe wasn't there before, and I praise God for that. God is at work in your life. Or I I see you ministering to your wife or your children in a way that I didn't see two or three years ago. That's an evidence of God's work in your life. And a thousand examples I could give. And you are supposed to have that effect on others as well. Well. And that encouragement, that deeply biblical gospel informed encouragement that we get to have and should have towards each other is part of how God works assurance in our hearts. As we look not at outward or meaningless or fluff reasons that we would have assurance, but to what is biblical and what is true and what is gospel based. And he says, better things. In your case, we feel sure of better things. Better than what? Better than falling away. He's contrasting this with verses 4 through 8. In your case, keeping in mind everything we just said in the warning, in your case, we feel sure of better things. Meaning things not like that. Not like falling away. And not just better, meaning neutral, but so much better. What you need to do, if you're one of the types of people who mark in your Bible, which is fine, circle better things or however your translation renders it, and point an arrow to verse 12 where he says, inherit the promises. That's in his mind. That's what what he's connecting here. In your case, we feel sure of better things. Then he continues, we want you to be imitators of those who faith and patience inherit the promises. Those are the better things. They are better because they belong to salvation. And there are many things that belong to salvation, many glorious things, and there's no way we could expend all of them, discuss all of them in one sermon. So I'm not going to try. I'll give you two passages. One, you don't need to turn to this one, I will have you turn to the next one, but. The first one I'll read is from 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Those are the things that belong to salvation, being washed, being sanctified, justified, and being in the name of Christ. And then I want you to turn to this one because it's perhaps the most encouraging passage of Scripture especially if you have suffered any in your life. Romans 8, verses 26 through 30. These are the things that belong to salvation. The things that he, the author looks at this people and he remembers their testimony, the the story of God's faithfulness in their lives. And he says, because of this and because of what I know about you, I feel sure of better things, the things that belong to salvation. So this is what he's talking about. Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Isn't that encouraging? Even Paul says we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. what belongs to salvation, brothers and sisters. And he looks at them and he says, in your case, I feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. These things, glorification, justification, sanctification, being washed, and the Spirit interceding for you. These are the things that belong to salvation. And might I just say to you, this is what I believe is the sixth encouragement here available uh, in this text, is to think on better things. To set your mind on things that are above. As Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. These are the things that belong to salvation. And this is what you're commanded to, as a Christian, to set your mind on these better things. Not to plug your ears and ignore the evil that's going on in the world, or just tell yourself that everything's going to be okay. But set your mind, take your mind in the, the, the arena of your thoughts, What what, what the stuff of your mind is on a daily basis and fill it with the heavenly things. And that works perseverance and that works endurance into your life as you set your mind on things. That's available to you every day. It doesn't matter what situation you're in. If you're working, not working, tired, energetic. If you're discouraged, if you're overjoyed, whatever situation you're in. Set your mind on things that are above. And if you can do that, if you can do that, if you can, as as a Christian, obey God and begin to invade the throne room of your mind with the things that are above, that's an evidence of grace. We need to encourage each other to do that as well. Set your mind on things above. We can be so terrestrial in our thoughts. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The things the Gentiles seek. Set your minds on things above. And then he gives us the main reason or the main ground why he has sureness or surety in their case. He says that in their case he feels sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And this is why you have to pay attention to the little words in your Bible. Little words are some of the most important words in the Bible. Depending on your translation, it might say because or since. ESV renders it for. It's a very small word in Greek. It's gar. It's very important. This is the ground. This is why he feels sure in their case. For God. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. It's the main reason he feels sure in their case. Not something identified in them. Obviously, it's in light of their work, but he feels sure of better things, things that belong to salvation because God, because God is a certain way, because God is just, he feels sure of better things. We have to be careful here in this text. Because if you read it just on a surface level and you move on, it can sound like he's teaching justification by works or merit instead of based on grace. We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, because God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. So we can think we can make the connection in our mind that, well, he's giving them salvation because of their work. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying here is how we have sureness. This is how we're able to be sure because God. Right. The salvation is not a result of works, but the assurance, the the assurance on the author's part and the assurance that he wants them to have is based on God's justice in response to their works. We discussed this a little bit last week. It bears repeating. It is so important. Salvation is not by works. God doesn't award or dole out salvation based on your work. That's not how it works. It is, as he says in verse 12, who through faith and patience inherit the promise. That's how the blessings of salvation are doled out to you through faith. So what is this works business? You got to look at it closely. He says, for we we, in your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation for it's explaining the sureness, why he's able to be sure we have sureness because God is not unjust to overlook your work. The author has assurance of his congregation and their standing in Christ because God is just and faithful. It is part, this is the point here, it is part of God's justice and faithfulness to award your heart and the hearts of those who know you assurance by your work. That's very significant. That, that help, should help you understand a big piece of how God works in your life and how you can see the evidences of grace in your life that God God's justice God's faithfulness, part of that is him awarding or giving you assurance as you work and love and serve. This is how Paul and John say it. I'll give you four passages and I apologize that I'm going to read through all of them. You don't have to turn there, but they're, they're that significant. Significant. This is from 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 7. He's speaking of him and his group. This is Paul. He's speaking of himself and his group of ministers. He says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us, And the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So we know we're sure in your case that God has chosen you, that you are in Christ, that you are truly a Christian because you received the word in much affliction. So it gives the Apostle Paul assurance to witness their faithfulness, And they're clinging to the word even in affliction. In 1 John 2, 3 through 6, he says, And by this we know. And this is why I said last week, if you struggle at all with assurance, in your case or in the case of a friend or brother and sister, 1 John is where you should go. You should just spend a lot of time in 1 John. This is how he says it in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. This is just one example. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says, He abides in Him, ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. This is how we come to know that we are in Him. It is not what makes you in Him. Faith puts you or places you in Christ. It unites you with Christ. But the way you come to know for sure that you are in Christ is through keeping His commandments. And also 1 John 3, not John 3, 16, but 1 John 3, 16 through 20 says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. But if anyone who has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. And reassure our hearts before God. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. So He is not so unjust. He is not unfaithful towards you. As you live out the Christian life. As you obey His commands and love your brothers and sisters. He works confidence and assurance in your heart that you are in fact in Him. This is how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 13, verses 3 through uh, verses 5 through 7. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may do no wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. Though we may seem to have failed. What he's saying here is even if it comes out that we didn't do a good job before you as as apostles, because he's contrasting himself with the super apostles who have come in after Paul and swept them up and make them. Uh, question Paul's ministries. That even if you come to a place where you think we did you wrong, don't fail to meet the test. Continue to do good and obey the Lord, and you will have sureness as believers in Christ that you have met the test. God does not. Let me just say again. Doesn't God does not award salvation to those who have good works and love? That gets the order and causation flipped. But He blesses others and you with full assurance through the love and good works that accompany salvation. So here's the encouragement in this. It's this the seventh encouragement. The full assurance of faith is something God works in you. He doesn't leave you out in the cold. He's not unjust to let, just let you question and fear and wonder. He works assurance in you, full assurance of faith to the end. He has prepared beforehand these good works for us to walk in them for a million reasons, to be sure. But one of the main reasons He gives us these works that He's prepared beforehand for you to walk in is so that you might have full assurance of faith. And He says... God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. One commentary I uh, was reading to help me understand this text says that this, this and love isn't like a tack on. He's not tacking on love. It's like, you know, oh, you have works and you also have love for his name, for God's name. He's actually, the way it's phrased is he is giving this as the ground the foundation of their work because he circles back and he says in serving the saints this love for God's name then because he's not he's not unjust so as to overlook their work and their love that you have shown for his God's name in serving the saints this love for God's name then is not attack on it's not an additional work it is the reason for the work And for the service mentioned here. So this is the eighth encouragement here. We have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But we have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You've been given the name of God. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to them. That is the great gift of Jesus's ministry to you, that he has entrusted to you, God's very name. And that works in you, that results in a, in a heart that, is, it, that loves Jesus, a love for the name of God. And if you know your Old Testament well, you know that the name of God is essentially say, the same thing as the glory of God or the renown of God. So do you love the name of God? Do you love the renown of God? His fame that is due him. Do you love the glory of God? If you do, the eighth encouragement that I'm trying to give to you is that is a work of grace that is by the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the Messiah in your heart that you love the name of God and you want to see him famous. You want to see him Lift it up. Pride and your own heart and my own nature, because we're in Adam, that doesn't make us want to glorify God's name. The natural person cannot understand the things of the spirit because they are spiritually discerned their folly to him. So if you see in your heart, you identify imperfectly as it may be, as it is in my heart, a desire, I want God to be famous. I want Christ to be lifted up. That is God's work in you. And it's so stunning when you see that and when you can identify that that's a work of grace in your heart. When you realize this isn't something I produced. And yet it is so close and near to my heart. It it is almost the most important thing about me. And even it may be the most important thing about you in your heart. That it has taken that place. I want God to be glorified. That's the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters. At work in you. That is a miraculous, powerful, infinitely beautiful thing he has done in your heart. A love for the name of God. And he says, he's not... Unjust so as to overlook your work and your love for his name in serving the saints. It's not just an emotion that you feel. It results in serving the saints. And that means biblically your brothers and sisters in Christ, not the super Christians among us or who have already gone on. The saints here means God's holy ones, all who are in Christ And this is a question you need to ask yourself. Do you love God because you love people? Or do you love people because you love God? Do you have affection for God because he is humanity's rescuer? and He is. Do you love what God is doing and what God is about because he promises to make things better and he does? Or do you love people? Do you love what God is doing in the world because it glorifies God and you love the name of God first and foremost? And it frees you to love people self-sacrificially because you're loving out of a motivation of loving God's fame and His name. And if the answer is yes, yes, Loving God's name, loving his glory is is the ground, the very bedrock, the foundation, the deep in my heart. That's of God. It doesn't naturally happen. This is how Paul says it in Romans. He says, for the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's the love of God towards us and the love of God in our hearts going up towards him through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. If the Holy Spirit is in you, he works love for God. And I want to give an encouragement. This is, uh, this is an aside, but it's very important. I want to give an encouragement to many in this room who right now might realize That the love of God's glory, the love of his fame, the love of his name is not at the bottom of your heart. It's not the foundation. It's not the bedrock. Even to come to that realization, even to come to a place where you realize, Oh, God's name and his glory and his fame isn't my main motivation. That's a work of grace. To even identify it as a problem is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. So if you see that in yourself, if you identify, oh, I don't really have that, that's grace. So be encouraged. God is at work. And he says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and your love for his name and the service of the saints as you still do. Have you not given up? As we looked at a little bit earlier, have you not fallen away? Have you not given up? Are you still working and serving the saints out of a desire to see God glorified in their lives? Can you look at your life and identify actions that are birthed from the love of God? Then you can be sure, you can be 100% sure that God is at work in your heart. So that's the ninth encouragement, as you still do, if you look at your life and the way you're trying to organize things and, you know, maybe it's not a whole lot of time or as much as time as you would want, but you're trying to make your life about serving the saints and seeking the kingdom. If that is you, then God is at work. That is a work of grace. Just as the prophets would say, I would say to you, do not despise the day of small things. You may read, as I do, stories of men and women of the faith who did such great things. Some of them are just overwhelming to read. How many books they wrote, how many sermons they preached, how many conversions took place under their ministry, how they wrung themselves out for the glory of God. And you look at yourself, I look at myself and I say, I I just, I don't have it. (laughs) I don't have the energy, I don't have the skill, I don't have the wherewithal. I've got besetting sins. I don't don't consider others good as much as I should. But don't despise the day of small things. Even getting up 15 minutes earlier or 5 minutes earlier to read your Bible or sacrificing a little bit of time in the throne room of your mind to pray. Even an attitude of dependency on God. You're walking into an important meeting and you say, Lord, please help me. And that's genuine and that's honest. That is a work of God in your heart. Don't despise the day of small things. And then he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope to the end. This word each is very important here. It's important to keep. This word in your mind to understand how the author can on the one hand say the serious and severe warnings of verses four through eight. But but on the other hand, say, in your case, we feel sure of better things. And he can say to them on the one hand, you have become dull of hearing. And then on the other hand, he says. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and your love for his name because not everyone is the same. And he's speaking to a large group, perhaps, maybe 50, 60, 100 people, maybe. Maybe it's even bigger. Maybe he knew that this was gonna be passed around to the churches in the area where he was writing. And he says, we want each of you to have this same type of earnestness. Maybe he doesn't know all of them personally. He's been away for a while. He knew how they began. You can see this in chapter 10. Hebrews, you can just go ahead and turn there. Hebrews chapter 10. This is what he's looking at, I believe. What he remembers in his mind. He says in verse 32, but recall the former days. He's he's calling on them to look back at God's faithfulness. And this is what I think is in his mind as he feels sure of better things. Chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need for endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So they receive the word, just as Paul says of the Thessalonians, you receive the word in affliction. Joyfully accepting the plundering of your own possessions. I don't know about you, but if, if my house is broken into and my stuff is all stolen because I'm a pastor, I would be greatly discouraged. Even though I would know that my reward is great in heaven, it would, it would, it would bear me down. But maybe, maybe that's just me looking at myself in the future in that moment, just thinking of what I could do on my own. The author here is looking at these people and says this is an evidence of the Holy Spirit in you that you are able to accept the plundering of your own possessions with joy. And so he wants all of them. He he knows these that he knew that he's referring to in chapter 10. And so it's been a while since he's been there. He's away from them. And maybe he's he's remembering that. He's hearing some concerning things about them. And he's writing to them. He's, He's saying, I want you to have that kind of earnestness. I want you all, each of you, to have that degree of earnestness for the things of the Lord. And then he says, to have. The full assurance of hope have this same type of earnestness so that you might have the full assurance of hope. And this is the heart of the encouragement in this passage. God does not prepare beforehand these works like a hiring manager. And if you don't. Do all that he commands, if you don't, if you don't live out and work in these works that he's prepared before you beforehand for you to do. You're not going to lose your starting role. You're not going to get demoted. He's created these works for you beforehand. Paul talks about in Ephesians 2.10. And he's given you the spirit so that you may be motivated to do them out of love of God so that, as he says, to have so that you may have the full assurance of hope until the end. So God's going to be glorified in your work, in your life, in your living out the commands of Christ and doing these good works for your brothers and sisters. And God's going to be glorified in it by giving you the full assurance of hope until the end. Eleventh encouragement here, and this is somewhat as an aside, but I think it's in this text as well. There may be some in this room who say, well, I'm obeying God, or at least I'm trying, and I'm trying to glorify God. And I feel assurance sometimes, but most of the time I struggle to feel any real assurance at all. So what are you saying, pastor, if, if I don't live this out, if, I, if I'm seeking to obey as this command says, and it's not resulting in any kind of assurance or the kind that I would want, does that mean I'm not in Christ? Not necessarily. It might alarm you to some things you need to address, but notice this. He says to have this is an infinitive meaning. This is something that takes time To be produced, you can't just wake up day one of being a Christian, begin doing good works and have immediately the full assurance of faith until the end. This is something we we are being saved, according to Paul. And this assurance is birthed through a long labor in your heart. I would also say you have to know what you're striving for. And you have to be able to view the good works this way. You can't see God as a coach on the sideline with a clipboard and a stopwatch. I've used this illustration multiple times before. You can't see him looking at your life and just waiting for you to mess up, to mark something down and to demote you. He's working in your life, in your heart, so that you might have this assurance and viewing your good work and your obedience this way, that you're not earning favors with God through obedience, but you are working to birth that assurance in your heart so that you would love God more, that is supposed to be the motivation in your heart for good works. And if it's not, you got to get that there before it can have its desired effect. If you're viewing God that way, that he is judging you based on your own merit, then you can't have assurance of faith until the end. Justification by works and viewing God as a God of merit-based blessing will ruin your faith. That's what we celebrate on Reformation Day. Just another shameless plug for this. that The gospel was returned to the populace. We're not justified by works. God doesn't dole out the blessings of salvation on those who get it together and knock it out of the park. He gives the blessings of salvation through repentance and faith. And then he gives us these works to do so that we would have assurance. Again, returning to this encouragement for those who struggle with assurance, you also have to see have a Christ centric view of God. What do I mean by that? When you think of God, you can't just think of the deity in heaven, the great power sitting on high. He is the great power reigning over the universe, but you have to have a Christ centric view of God. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is sitting at the right hand, he has made him known. Christ has made God known. And so when you think of God, everything, the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. And so when you think of him, when you think of his love for you and his care for you, you need to think of Jesus. You need to think of his ministry towards you as your great high priest as we've been looking at. Now also say that you need to repent as well. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit by whom you're sealed. So if you struggle with assurance, if you struggle with the full assurance of faith to endure to the end, make sure that you are in the habit of repenting. Because sin and continued sin and habitual sin cuts us off from that full assurance of faith to the end. Sin doesn't break God's promise towards you in your salvation. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. From all unrighteousness. Then he says, So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Notice again that he's wanting us to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. This faith and patience are essentially the same things. You can see this in Romans eight, twenty-three through twenty-five. Mark that down, we don't have time to read through and explain it, but these aren't two things. The faith and the patience aren't two things. He's describing what true faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So when we have faith, we have patience. They're essentially the same thing. And this is the final encouragement. Through faith and patience, you will inherit the promises. And we would be here for another 15 hours at least to discuss all the promises of salvation, so I won't do that to you. I'll give you five. Five promises. The promises you inherit, brothers and sisters, is a list longer than I could give you even in this the rest of this day. And we'd be here even longer if I were to explain what I can just barely begin to understand what the promises that are in God's word. But here are five there are five that for me, there's no there's no particular reason why I've selected these. Other than they've been meaningful to me and encouraging to me. And we'll end with these. Here are the promises of salvation, if you're not in Christ, view the glory of these promises as an open invitation, this can be yours in Christ. If you're struggling with assurance, see the glory and the beauty of these promises that you will inherit through faith and that works in you, assurance. We're not just talking about escape from hell, brothers and sisters. We're talking about these glorious promises from Revelation 3, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as also I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne you brother or sister in Christ will get to sit with Christ on his throne from where he rules the entire universe there was a song I I heard as a child it it was I forget the title of it but there was a phrase that says give me just a cabin in the corner of glory land and I understand what it's trying to say like I, I don't need a huge big reward To follow Jesus, I just need entrance into the kingdom, right? But that's not what waits for you. It's not just a cabin in the corner somewhere. You get to sit on the throne with Christ. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Bring up in your mind any of the suffering that you have Been asked to endure as a Christian, or any of the suffering that any of the people you love have been asked to endure. And Paul looks at that as a person who suffered greatly himself and says, It's not even worth comparing. You can't even put them in the scales together because it's not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed in us, and to us, and through us. That's a promise. It's not as specific maybe as we would like, but the promise is that the glory that's going to be revealed to you is so great and so grand and so life-giving and so joy-filled that you can't even take the most horrendous suffering that you've been asked to go through or anyone else has had to go through and even compare it. The third promise that I'll give you today we looked at this a few weeks ago. Father, I desire that they also, this is from John 17:24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Many of us think wouldn't it have been great to walk around with Jesus? They got to see him transfigured before their eyes up on the mountain. What waits for you, brothers and sisters, is to see the glory of Christ that even the disciples didn't get to see in full. You get to see it. That's what waits for you one day that the veil will be open in full and there will be the Lion of Judah and you'll see him in all his glory. And we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Do you understand the magnitude of that? That that vision, that sight is what waits for you. That's the promise for you that you inherit through faith. Fourth promise, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. He's talking about knowing God. This infinite being of all glory and all majesty and all power we see in a mirror dimly. We're we're looking at a glass. It's as if his glory is behind us and it's an imperfect mirror and we're looking and we're trying to see it clearly. And there there is a sense in which we can see him and know him. But even the best saints among us over the thousands of years that we've been on this planet, brothers and sisters, it's a glass that is dim. It is a foggy Mirror, But one day you will stand before him and not just see him, not just witness his glory, but know him. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That what waits for you, your destiny and mine, brothers and sisters, the promise we inherit through faith is to know God fully. Lastly, Revelation 21, verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This isn't just one day that waits for you to see Jesus' glory and to know God fully and to sit on His throne. This is your destiny that will be there forever. The dwelling place of God is with man now and He is our God and we are His people. That is the promise you inherit through faith. So let the day be the day of salvation. May today be the day of great encouragement for you, brothers and sisters. This is what awaits you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the grand and glorious nature of the promises that we inherit through faith. Give us the strength and wisdom and knowledge that we need to obey. To live a life of good works and love and service towards the saints so that we might have the full assurance of faith. Please encourage us today in Jesus name. Amen.